Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Undermine Season 4, Episode 20. That means 4 and 20, which means I'm Tom Marshall, and I'm your fish tour guide. As we continue onwards through 25 stops along Fish 1.0 history, yes, the 1990s. We're counting down or up, depending on your view, to Fall 97, the tour when fish destroyed America. We'll be discussing every Fall 97 show on its anniversary. But in the meantime, you can catch new episodes of Undermine every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we tweet the show date in advance. And if you got the memo about today's episode... Then you took a trip to the old Aladdin Theater that once could be found on the Las Vegas Strip, and it was a venue in a casino that no longer exists. Of course, Vegas you know, has become a fan favorite place to see the band play nowadays, but at the time, it seemed pretty surreal for the name of our little band from Vermont to be up in lights overlooking the neon jungle of Las Vegas. Speaking of sightseeing, <laughs> those watching at home on YouTube can already see that my co-host for today's episode is fellow Undermine executive producer and New York Times bestselling author, Benji Eisen. Welcome back, Benji. Hi, Tom. I uh, have to tell you, I'm excited for today because we get to talk about donuts and I'm talking <laughs> pre-Baker's Dozen Donuts. Right. And we also get to talk about Elvis and we get to talk about Primus and Showgirls, Las Vegas Spectacle, and it's all in the context of one single fish show. But uh, I think the very first thing that comes to mind when talking about this show didn't even take place on stage whatsoever, but it involved this really elaborate prank that enlisted uh, the character Malachi from the horror film Children of the Corn. But, uh, <laughs> but first, so that we're all on the same page, 
Today's special is the December 6, 1996 show from the Aladdin Theater. It was inside the Aladdin Casino, where right now I believe a Planet Hollywood stands, although not for much longer as these things go. I think there's other plans for it. Um, this show, though, it's a notable highlight because it came during a fish touring season where, frankly, you know, we, we needed a highlight. We needed a win. And what a better place for a win than uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> so, you know, keep in mind that this was, uh, you know, the, the band played Remain in Light uh, for Halloween just a couple months earlier. So after that, the talking heads became the talking point for the band's, you know, musical direction for the immediate shows that followed, like Coral Sky famously, but also for the year that followed. You, you know, you really just can't have fall 97 without having Halloween 1996. The, uh, the oddity of a show uh, where Arena Fish met Las Vegas Spectacle as Fish was at the crossroads between um, Prod Rock and Cal Funk. <laughs> but, you know, Cal Funk was just the cross street here. The band on this particular night, they were stuck in Glitter Gulch. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but we do have someone with us today who might be able to answer uh, that those these questions. Before we bring him on, though, we're going to turn those Las Vegas spotlights on you at home listening. You know, big neon lights that say, if you've been enjoying this season of Undermine, then please look up Osiris Premium on Apple, where a subscription will get you ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. Okay, Tom, as I said, I'm excited for today's guest, so let's bring him on. Well, I'm excited too, Benji, because even though we may have had more analytically you know, active and obsessive fish fans on the show with us this season, we're about to speak with someone who wrote the book on fish. Yes, the man, the person, the author who wrote the book that we're talking about, he wrote the first authorized official book on fish. He wrote the fish book. And his name is Richard Gare. Although actually, if you've read the fish book, you might recall that Richard had Trey Mike Page, Fishman, and some other people, maybe even their lyricist, help him out a bit as the band's history was told almost exclusively through quotes. But after today, maybe we'll be quoting him. Let's bring former Spin Magazine editor Richard Gare out of the waiting room and on to the show. Hi. There he is. Hey, Richard. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us today. It's great having you on. And on this season of Undermine, we've been tracing the road to Fish's Fall 97 tour by revisiting 25 shows that got them there. And this December 6, 96 show is one of those historic markers. And it's one of the three shows from 96 that made our, our cut. Our previous episode was on Halloween in Atlanta. And now here we are in Vegas. But before we travel there, can you tell us your own history with the band, beginning with when you caught your first show? Yeah, sure. Um, my first shows were, well, funny, it took me kind of a while to get into fish because I'm a dork. And for many, many months, whenever I would see the name fish uh, listed in the Village Voice or someplace like that, I think it was this prog rock band called Marillion, whose lead singer was named Fish. Fish, right. And who went solo. So I'd see them, I'd see them playing at Irving Plaza, and then I'd see Fish, and then I'd get them confused, and I'd just ignore them. But um, my my deadhead friend's 
finally said, dude, you gotta, you gotta check these guys out. So uh, I saw them at the Beacon Run in New York in April of 94. Ah, I saw the and, last one of that. Yes, that was great. Yeah. And I was, I was, uh, I was impressed. You know, um, Richard, well, first of all, it's good to see you. It's been a while. So, hey, so hi. Um, you know, you were at this show in Las Vegas. Uh, it was the final night of the fall 1996 tour, which was the band's first true coast to coast arena tour. Hmm. But they, they ended it in a theater on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, and most notably, it was also, you know, the first time the band ever played that entire state, I believe. So can you paint the picture for us? Did it seem like when Fish hit the Las Vegas Strip, like was it Fish out of water? Was the lot <laughs> theme swallowed by slot machines? Or was there this feeling that this show was going to be different, you know, than all the arena shows that they had been taking city to city all fall? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'd, been, I'd been to Atlanta. And for Halloween. And so I'd been seeing a bunch of those arena shows. And when I got to Las Vegas, it was my first time in Las Vegas. And my feeling about it was, oh, please, the average person who comes to Las Vegas is so much weirder than the fish fish fans <laughs> I knew. I mean, <laughs> it's a freak show. You know, the whole city is a freak show. So um, uh, there were there were fish fans. But since it was a relatively small place, I mean, the Aladdin Theater only held held. 7,500 people. So there were tons of fish fans. And also the, uh, the world radio, uh, the world rodeo championship was in town. So there are a lot of cowboys wandering around too. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was a great, it was a cool scene. It was a good, great introduction, at least for me to Las Vegas. That's awesome. And uh, Richard, you and I were first introduced when um, you, as, as you were an author writing the fish book and we mentioned it in our intro to you but i think that's how you and i first met and if i'm correct the fish book begins shortly after this show ends because this was the final stop of the band's uh fall 96 uh tour and i'm pretty sure i'm remembering the fish book kind of begins with new year's eve 96 and then chronicles the band through 97 um and uh, you picked a good year, uh, but that yeah, also—I <laughs> know, I know, I have great taste. <laughs> but that also means that by December sixth, the date of this show, that you must have already started work on the book. And and where does that fall in the timeline? And I guess what I'm getting at here is that I remember you and I uh, spent many wonderful shows and glorious fun times together. And I'm wondering if you had started working with the band before the show or or just after. Um, I think the book officially started kind of just after we hung out at the at the Clifford Ball. I remember oh, that. Oh, was that our right? Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We definitely hung out at the Clifford Ball, and and uh, that was kind of the high point of my fish year. Yeah. Uh, up to up until up until Las Vegas, and so um, and then the my and I started hanging out with the band for the book uh, next year. I went to Texas with them in. February. Oh, cool. And then I went to Italy with them. And that was really sweet later that year. So um, it, I think it basically started after Vegas, but they were really, really nice to me in Vegas. And I think I was all accessed in Vegas because I was a lot of places where I, I probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And you and I both had these like uh, tremendously powerful AA cards back then, which mm. actually were the same level as the band's AA cards. So we could go anywhere. And, and I have and, no idea how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard, let's talk for a second about somebody else who's at this show uh, and skipping ahead for a second because I just can't wait to get to this part. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's Malachi from Children of the of the Corn. His real name, of course, is Courtney Gaines. Uh, and he sat in with the band on percussion during the encore, but that's not the significance. Uh, so can you... Walk us through what, in, in my mind, is maybe the greatest rock and roll prank of all time, or at least at least one of them. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about having lunch with him and uh, and and Mike Gordon at a Benihana. Uh, well, I want before. that story too. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not much of a story. That was that was it was just very pleasant. I do not remember what we talked about, <laughs> except that he except he was kind of psyched to do this thing that I had just heard about. So tell us. Uh, it's it's kind of it's kind of a long complicated story, but I'll try and boil it down. Um, Trey gives an excellent account of it uh, online, which I'm sure you can find in his memorial for his bestest friend um, Chris Cottrell. And uh, uh, so uh, yeah, it was weird. Trey had this giant party in his in his uh, fancy Vegas suite, and there are lots and lots of people there. And uh, at one point. Uh, uh, Trey uh, disappeared with his friend Chris Cottrell and uh, for a few hours and people hung out there and just partied for another few hours way into the morning and then around 2.30 or 2.45 they came back and uh, oh everybody was hiding in the balcony because we knew something was going to happen we didn't know what but it was uh, Trey had said it's going to be pretty weird and those guys came back and they sat down in front of a widescreen TV and they put on Children of the Corn, which is the scary 1984 movie that uh, Courtney Gaines stars in. And as they're watching this movie, uh, it gets gorier and gorier. And then at one point when it's particularly violent, uh, Trey slips out to uh, the bathroom and instead of returning, Courtney returns, Malachi from Children of the Corn, the bad guy, the evil guy returns wearing Trey's jacket, looking kind of like Trey because he has he has red hair and sits down next to Chris Cottrell, who, um, oh, I should have mentioned, um, was high on mushrooms. <laughs> very high. <laughs> and, very high on mushrooms. And uh, after he sits down, Chris looks over at him and you can just like, you can sense the fear emanating from him. And uh, after a minute, things are kind of quiet, except for the movie, except Chris Cottrell suddenly stands up and walks away very slowly <laughs> from the couch. And, as and, and, you know, you can tell the vibe's getting pretty weird. And then Trey kind of bursts out of the bathroom, <laughs> which, which must have been 10 times as scary because he thought he was sitting next to him on the couch. Yeah. And um, uh, they'd, they'd apparently hired two opera singers who were supposed to go, wee, 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 or something That's like right. that, you know, like the psycho scream. But they didn't. They, they missed their cue. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, it was it was pretty brilliant in, in, in Chris's mind, sitting there on mushrooms, watching Children of the Corn. 
turning to look at Trey and seeing him transformed Malachi. in Malachi. What do you think went on in his head right there? <laughs> I don't know. Did you ever talk to him about it? No. You probably would have run into him more often than I would. I, I never asked him that. I didn't think I ever ran into him again to ask It must him. have been absolutely, completely <laughs> horrifying and terrifying. Richard, you were there in the room for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, I still like genuinely belly laugh every time that I that I that I think about the prank because it's just so elaborate and that they pulled it off like that is just uh it, it's incredible it's rock and roll history, you know. And a lot I know and, and a lot and it had a huge audience too. There must have been dozens of people up in that balcony looking and at And you it. didn't make any noise. People were people were um it was it was like a surprise party, I guess. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> Tom, were you, you were you there for that? Uh no, no, nope. I wasn't there and I wasn't there for this show, sadly. Well, maybe uh the next time that Fish plays Halloween, we can get the entire audience to dress up as Malachi. But <laughs> be, before I accidentally start a grassroots campaign, let's go the opposite <laughs> way and let's sure. get corporate for a very brief commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. We're here with journalist and fish chronicler Richard Gare, and we're talking about December 6th, 1996, Las Vegas. Richard, this is one of those rare shows where the encore probably overshadows the rest of the show. But before we get there, do you want to walk us through some of the highlights of the two quote-unquote normal sets that happened first? Yeah, Uh they were great. I mean, it was, it was a, they were really, the, the second set was monstrous. The first set was really good. I mean, the most monstrous thing might've been Mike's sparkly pants that he was wearing for the whole show, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I, which still haunt me, but uh, they were pretty great. But the whole, the whole show was super solid. I mean, you know, it started out with Wilson and, and, and Peaches and which I was happy because Frank Zappa is my Elvis. And also they played 2001, like one of the first um, extended 2001s they played, I, I think, which was, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but um, that was Elvis's uh, opener. That was his theme song entrance music for oh, years. Wow. Also Sprock Zarathustra. Six minute, you enjoy myself with the donuts jam, the donuts. I love donuts vocal jam, <laughs> which uh, took 21 years to come to fruition as a donut run, a complete donut run. Uh, well, it came so, full donut. Uh, full donut. Yeah, the donuts. You know, they're playing the long game, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it was set too that was that blew my mind. I mean, there's just like an hour of some of the best music they've ever played in there. There was like a Mike's, a really evil Mike's, into a really sunny, beautiful, long, simple, into an ecstatic Harry, and into Weekapa, where they did this 
stop start thing at the end where they stopped completely, came back, and then Trey turned on his Leslie, which uh, sounded really cool. They stopped again and then jumped back in and everyone went ape shit. <laughs> then they played like the best good times, bad times. I can think. I, I remembered them playing. Trey just goes wild. Trey's like cutting loose, and yeah, it was it was well, it was good. People think of 1996 as like a transitional year, you know, between like the wild 95 stuff and then the like the organic full jam, full band jams of 97. Um, but there's some really great shows in 96. And uh, this was one of them. For sure. Well, you just answered uh, uh, my question, which was uh, if it stands out to you as a show without the encore, would would this still be a show that we're talking about? And I, I think you just uh, answered that. Yes. Well, I would be. <laughs> the one word, <laughs> the one word answer works. <laughs> well, uh, here it is. Let's talk about the elephant. And by that, I mean the elephant in the room, the encore. And does it qualify as a third set? I mean, I guess it's just the encore, but it's it's 40 minutes long. Uh, Richard, do you want to give us a rundown of, of uh, your version of what went on for that encore? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the, the Clifford Ball kind of like set established Fish as a band that could put on like a big theatrical production, you know, an event. But at the Aladdin, there was this, it, it had this kind of like, let's put on a show in high school quality to it or, or like the, or like the Oregon country fair. If you've ever been to that, it's like, you know, hippie, the hippie theater out in the woods and stuff. I mean, it was kind of down home and funky. And, and uh, so it started with Harpua, which they played in four, four time rather than seven, four, they usually played it in so that less playful could go into wildwood weeds a couple minutes into it. And it started out a little shaky. It's like, uh oh, this could be a train wreck. But they, it's they, weirdly they syncopated. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah. very weird hearing it that way, but it, it made yeah. sense, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it kind of rambled on and, the, and traded the Harpuist story. And, and where Jimmy's bored and anxious in the suburbs of Game Hinge, and he's like <laughs> taking a walk with his. I like he calls it. He calls. Poster Nutmeg, his be Jimmy's beautiful confidant, which I thought was very sweet. On, on this particular day, Jimmy is feeling a little bit anxious because he's been sitting in suburbia for so long. He's bored, he's anxious, and he decides that he's going to go on a crazy trip. So he decides that he's going to take his little feline friend, his cat, his beautiful confidant, his pussy cat, his best friend, Poster Nutmeg, and that the. Yes, the two of them are going to go on a little trip. 
So what they decide they're going to do is they decide they're going to walk all the way from the outskirts of Gamehenge to the bright neon lights and the golden opportunities and the huge buildings of Las Vegas and Nevada. And uh, they go like wandering through the desert and there's a clip clopping coconut clip clops and they camp outside of uh, uh, outside of Las Vegas. And then the yodeling cowgirls of uh, uh, Arizona show up to sing Cowboy Sweetheart, which was a 1935 song written by Patsy Montana. It was a huge hit in 1935. It was like the first it was like the first uh, song by a woman singer to sell a million copies. It was a huge hit. It was wow. like the, I don't know what it was like. It was like the lemonade of, uh, <laughs> of 1935. Uh, and John McEwen was on steel, pedal steel guitar. So there was like a, this whole country vibe thing happening. And then uh, Jimmy and Poster Nut Bay continue watering into Las Vegas where they are confronted with four <laughs> Elvi. Elvis's Elvi, who seemed to be rather threatening. I don't know if anyone could ever be threatened by an Elvis, but these guys were apparently uh, very threatening. Um, but they quickly break into song. They come off stage, four Elvis impersonators wander on stage and start like gyrating maniacally on stage in their different ages of Elvis costumes. Like one's fat, obviously fat Elvis, and the other's <laughs> like leather Elvis, and one's pure glitter Elvis. And it was, I was, it was kind of remarkable. They each had their own personality, and it was uh, all I could think of was <laughs> these guys must get a lot of action <laughs> because <laughs> they're really sexy. <laughs> they're, 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 it was, it was very um, primal in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, the way I looked at it when I saw. Um, you know, and I, I've only seen this on video. I was not there, but um, the the camera's far enough back that you just see sort of uh, three white dressed Elvises and then one in black. And I was kind of thinking, like, why is he like the auto mechanic Elvis? I was like, I couldn't quite see that it was leather. But then eventually he steps out of uh, the shade and into the spotlight. And I'm like, oh, OK. No, I get, I, at first, I didn't get it at all. Yeah, yeah. And but soon they were joined by a fifth Elvis when John Fishman emerged, stepped down from behind the drums with his Elvis cape on to uh sing suspicious minds with them. And that was it was really funny. It was it was just <laughs> it it uh it uh what was oh I forgot. I could yeah, no, I forgot. Uh wait. Uh Les Claypool. And uh, uh, the other guy, the, the guitarist right, from Primus, yep. yeah, they were on stage too, and uh, uh, they were they were uh, people were wild about them. People were so happy that they were there. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, a great that's a great rundown, Richard. It's a great rundown. <laughs> also, as you as you mentioned, Tom, there is video of this, so if people want to go and see it. They can. And I was surprised that that it's been it had been up until last night. It had been years until I watched that that or years since I watched that video, and I forgot that in my mind, you know, Tom, you and I talked about the twelve one ninety five Hershey show too, where where Fishman does suspicious minds, and in my mind, he had such an elaborate 
Elvis costume and then watching it last night with the real with the, with the real Elvi, it was kind of just like this janky jape. Yeah. <laughs> it was a so-so Elvis costume. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Richard, I think you, you kind of, again, answered my, my next question about, about the, the privacy guys, but, you know, as a music journalist and from your background, when, when it was kind of, even at the time, it was kind of a big deal that they had, you know, two of the guys with Primus from them, uh, especially, you know, well, first of all, if, if you watch in, the, in that that video, there's actually this great moment where Larry and Trey are kind of mirror images of each other because Trey's in front of Larry, but they're playing the same rhythm and they're they're moving their bodies kind of in a very similar fashion. And then, you know, during the narration part where Trey just puts his guitar down and Larry plays these like really jazzy guitar lines underneath, but you know, at the show itself, I don't know how many Fish fans were were aware of Primus at this point in 1996 when they were such a, a stadium worldwide tour touring at. Uh, was it exciting for you at all uh, to to see the guys from Primus? Well, it was it was it was, it was there were so many people on stage. Yeah. It was a, you know, it was it was a small stage. It wasn't an arena stage. It was a you know medium theater stage. So there was the four Fish guys. Larry and Les, six, so there were four guitars on stage. And then there were like, then there were four Elvises and two Yodlers and one John McEwen, the great John McEwen of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on pedal steel guitar. So it was pretty crowded up there. The fans love it, you know, um, uh, whether or not they're doing antics or they just have guests, like anything that changes it up, fans love. And and uh, Benji, I know you in particular like uh, antics of any kind. And yeah, and I enjoy it myself, <laughs> you know, it's just entertainment and it changes things up. And sometimes I get to participate, you know, like walking on stage and pretending to be Bruce Springsteen or something. Uh, but yeah. there's not not a, really any statement uh behind it i don't think uh but but were they ever dressed up have you ever dressed up like bruce springsteen um well for that show this is at at um this is in homedale new jersey and i can't quite come up with the the date uh benji might be able to i, I, um, I think it may have been in 99 uh, but i might be wrong about that i don't know at the moment <laughs> um, the top of my head, yeah. but i but i wore uh jeans and i wore a black button down uh long sleeve and I had a red bandana. And so I was as close to Bruce Springsteen as I could be, probably being a foot taller than he is. 
I think I, re- I think I was there. I, th- I remember that show. Yeah, people yes. thought I people thought I was Bruce. Uh, the way that they had seeded the rumor about Bruce coming was uh, probably a little bit too believable, and I understood there was like even a little bit of anger about about it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like when they uh, uh, promised Tom Hanks uh, or when Tom Hanks appeared. Oh, yeah. for it. <laughs> it was it's like, just, oh, it's not Tom Hanks. Oh, it was we a little like, right. It was a bit of a letdown <laughs> finding out that that wasn't really Tom Hanks. But um, we're over the top antics uh, from this night to you, kind of like making fun of or or mocking the Vegas uh, entertainment industry. You no more than fish mocks everything, sort of, in a way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Every, everything is slightly ironicized, but absolutely, like, true in spirit and authentic at the same time. I mean, they play both. They play all sides against it, and, and, and they usually come out, you know, just <laughs> being their own thing. Yep. I thought it was great. I thought it was a celebration of over the top popular entertainment. You know, cool. I, th- I think they were saying, you know, you think Las Vegas is weird. Well, we can put on something even weirder too. <laughs> and uh, it was really fun. And then like the Omni, they had to tear down the Aladdin right after the show. <laughs> they did not tear down the theater though. They oh, tore okay. down, they tore down the hotel. Oh, okay. The theater. Well, something the theater had to was in, the, the theater was in a separate building oh okay and it's now it's the zappos the zappos theater so you can still buy a pair of shoes there if you don't see elvis (laughs) awesome (laughs) the uh the casino itself i think was was demolished and then remade as the aladdin and then demolished but yeah they, they kept the actual theater which was then put in a shopping mall i think um where i saw a tray for for vegas um now, Richard, you know, you come from a strong background in music journalism, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, Spin Magazine, Village Voice, Rolling Stone, too many others to name, not to mention that I don't even know them all. But, uh, you know, <laughs> when when Fish dives into these campy, self-referential gads and these game hench gimmicks like this, you know, as an audience member, as, as Tom mentioned, I, I personally, I love it. It's It's part of the draw for me. It's one of about a dozen traits that, when you take all together, to me, elevate fish above their contemporaries. But um, the established music press back in the day wasn't so kind. You know, I'll, I'll never fully understand this, but rock and roll journalism can sometimes be so stuffy and serious to know how to handle a, a very serious band of world-class musicians that still refuse to take themselves too seriously. You know, and for example, uh, they can end the show with a nonsensical vocal jam or an acapella star-spangled banner or a Led Zeppelin cover, you know, depending on the night. So, you know, being part of the establishment, <laughs> being part of the established music <laughs> press, did did you find that to be true? I mean, did you get any pushback from peers at the time when you told them that you flew to Las Vegas to see Fish Jam with a bunch of yodelers and primates <laughs> and a member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and the dude from Children of the Torn? <laughs> <laughs> no, I came back with some really amazing stories. People were people were jealous. I think so that they, you know, that they that they didn't know about this. Also, you know, I've been seeing the Grateful. Dead. I've been putting up with bullshit about being a deadhead since you know <laughs> the early 70s so <laughs> i'm used to it i have a thick hide at this point for for the jam band backlash well why do you um, think the music press though was so you know at, at the time why do you think it, it gave push back and fish overall 
Um, well, I, I think they would say their management would say it was because they the, the Grateful Dead were already you know um, they they were already this kind of weird thing that music critics didn't get until twenty years later. And then every music critic in the world is like, "Oh, I love the Grateful Dead. They're my, they've been my favorite band for forever." Yeah, like like you've written about them then in the last twenty years, you know. <laughs> and Fish is the Fish. same way. Yeah, Fish is the same way. Like about twenty years after Fish was a thing, people suddenly started taking them seriously. So, I not sure, uh, you know, why why it, why it takes so long, but because uh, they're complicated, you know, they're 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 playing the long game. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and they don't fit into the the mold that that someone might expect and and you know makes it easier to write about or whatever full donut yeah full donut and now we're coming up like you said it took 20 years so we're coming up on 40 years on fish pretty soon so 40 years that's amazing pretty amazing i think 39 is still in front of us but in any case um uh when we get to this point of the show it means that we're at the end of the show (laughs) out of time (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, our guest today yeah richard is really wonderful to have you our guest today is richard gare uh author of the fish book uh check it out we wanted to open it up uh today and show you a picture that i'm proud of that i'm in it with trey it's a great photo (laughs) um i love it uh, Trey actually gave it to me framed later because he liked it so much. Um, but at, in the honor of that photo, I'm wearing the shirt that I still have that I was <laughs> in in that photo. So I, I, I love it. But anyway, Richard, thanks for uh, writing such a great book. I, I loved it. And um, and thank oh, you thanks, for being and thank you for being our guest today. And also thanks to my frequent co-host Benji Eisen for discussing Vegas. 12696 with all of us today. Um, at the conclusion of today's episode, uh, it also means that we're about to cross into 1997. And if you want to stay ahead of us, uh, listen to uh, 21797 from Amsterdam sometime this week. We'll do it too. And then we'll meet back here on Friday to talk about it. See you then. And until then, never rule out the possibility that Malachi is right behind you at this moment, watching. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Osiris. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and while we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel 
They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.